What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Monday, August 16th. I'm Gideon Resnick. And I'm Josie Duffy Rice. And this is What a Day, where we would never conclude our months long search to replace Alex Trebek by choosing an executive producer to host the podcast. Uh, Josie, I have some bad news. I am an executive producer of this podcast. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Hollywood nepotism strikes again. And now we have to replace Gideon with LeBar Burton. All right, so before we get rolling today, I wanted to give a huge Wad Squad welcome to our newest co-host, Josie Duffy Rice. Bam, 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 bam. She is formerly the president of the news outlet, The Appeal, host of the podcast, Justice in America. You have seen her work. If you haven't, where have you been? You've been sorely missing out. She's also a writer and a lawyer who does not practice law. She's working on her first book, so tons of tons of stuff. You've heard her as a guest on here before, bringing her expertise on criminal justice and so much more. Josie, I could not be more thrilled that you are joining us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be an absolute blast. So on today's show, the Razor phone gets a reboot, plus Haiti's recovery effort after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake rocked the country this past weekend. But first, we're going to bring you the latest out of Afghanistan. We're just going to bring you these uh, live and exclusive uh, pictures here from inside the presidential palace. Uh, what you are looking at right now is Taliban fighters inside the presidential palace. Uh, yeah, so that was an Al Jazeera broadcast yesterday as Taliban fighters took control of Kabul and effectively the country's government too. This was the end of a fast takeover where the Taliban also gained control of other cities in the country, which all came in advance of a planned full U.S. troop withdrawal in just a few weeks. Before the Taliban entered the presidential palace, President Ashraf Ghani also fled Afghanistan yesterday. Some U.S. embassy personnel were able to evacuate, too. As we go to record on Sunday night, the Pentagon has said it plans to send an additional 1,000 troops to Kabul's airport to help with that withdrawal. Many Afghans themselves attempted to leave as well, leading to massive crowding at the Kabul airport. According to the United Nations, around 330,000 Afghans have been displaced so far this year alone. But reports say that the U.S. has limited the evacuation of Afghans, including those who have worked alongside and helped the U.S. military over the past 20 years, in order to prioritize the evacuation of Americans. Human rights groups and refugee groups have criticized the Biden administration for not prioritizing getting people out. Yeah, for good reason. Um, it's really hard to put all of this into words as it's happening, but nearly two decades since 9-11, billions of dollars, lives lost and destroyed over the course of four presidential administrations. This was the imagery from the end of one of America's so-called forever wars. For more on what this all means for Afghan citizens and the future of the country, I spoke with Laurel Miller. She's the director of the International Crisis Group's Asia program. Between 2013 and 2017, Miller was the deputy and then acting special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan at the U.S. State Department. We talked on Sunday afternoon, and I first asked her what her initial reaction was to the then-developing situation. 
what we've seen happen over the last 24 hours is as you know shocking and head spinning to me as it is to a lot of other people of course i mean absolutely nothing compared to the afghans who are actually experiencing it but unfathomable things <laughs> happen and right. even expected or anticipated or predicted things that are quite dire happen but actually experiencing them has an emotional impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're speaking to something that people are trying to wrap their heads around right now, which is the U.S. has been in the country for decades. We're witnessing this now. What were some of the factors that prompted the Taliban to sweep so much of the country and to do it this swiftly? So you have to look at both sides of the equation. One side is Taliban strategy, Taliban strengths, and the other side is Afghan government weaknesses. And I think the rapidity of the collapse speaks much more to the Afghan government weakness side of the equation than it does to the Taliban strength side, because that hasn't changed in a matter of days or weeks, and their strategy hasn't even really changed. It's a continuation of a trajectory. Uh, And on the other side, we see that in the absence of being able to be assured of the continued support of the American military, of having that backing there, not just, you know, we'll keep sending you money, but having it on the ground in action. It's revealed that the Afghan security forces, political leadership, population didn't have confidence in their own government and own system. Right. And is this particular situation something that the U.S. could have prevented through doing something different of any sort? I mean, you can point to specific seeming missed moments of opportunity, strategic errors along the way. I think more fundamentally, though, the U.S. went into Afghanistan for counterterrorism reasons, to go Mm. after al-Qaeda, the perpetrators of 9-11, and is saying that those goals were largely achieved a full decade ago, including when Osama bin Laden was killed. But it's also true that the U.S., when it did invade, had two purposes and has pursued two missions. One of them was going after al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. The other was regime change, Mm. ousting the Taliban and setting up a new regime. And the U.S. did that because the Bush administration determined that it was intolerable for the Taliban, who had harbored al-Qaeda, to remain in governance in control in Afghanistan, that a lesson had to be taught and that we could not tolerate their rule. And from regime change flows all the nation building, all the other things that we were doing in Afghanistan over 20 years that had only, you know, were related to counterterrorism, but weren't a counterterrorism mission. But it is the case that the U.S. had two missions, one whose objectives were largely achieved 10 years ago and another which has failed. Right. Because the Taliban is now back in control of Afghanistan, something that was judged intolerable 20 years ago. Right. And um, I want to go back to a point that we were mentioning earlier that I think is one that feels the most salient to me today, which is what this is going to mean for citizens Hmm. in the country. In terms of what life's going to be like going ahead for 
the Afghan people, what does this next phase of Taliban rule in Afghanistan look like? We just can't know yet. Mm. The Taliban, unlike other you know, insurgent groups around the world, they don't have a political manifesto in any level of detail. They didn't even really have a political wing in the sense of like a political party element of their insurgent group, like you see in some other countries. They have very vague outlines of what Taliban rule will look like that they've put forward with no details. And we'll have to see. They say they have learned lessons from mistakes they made in the 1990s, but what they think those mistakes were, what they think those lessons are, they haven't said with any detail. What is the most important thing that can happen next that we should watch for that would give us indications as to how all of this progresses? We don't even know at the moment what kind of government the Taliban is going to set up. What is the state system going to be? Um, And who's going to be in it? And will they do what they've said they recognize they should do, which is have a somewhat inclusive government. They have an interest logically in doing that because it could help to diffuse the risk of armed opposition to their government arising. It would be, it would align with their foreign policy, which is to try to show a a responsible face to the countries, particularly in the region, not so much the U.S. and the West, but Pakistan, Iran, China, Russia, to show to them, you know, we didn't just have a military victory. We've tied a political bow on this. If they do that and follow through on what they've said they recognize is important for anyone who's governing Afghanistan, which is inclusivity, that would be a sign that they're taking their own rhetoric seriously and trying to implement it. Is there some sort of response that we could or could not see from the Biden administration? And what form exactly would that take? The question now for the administration in terms of its diplomacy and its policy is, where is it going to be on the spectrum of opposing the Taliban takeover to accepting the Taliban takeover, acknowledging them as now the government as legitimate as the government is exists mm. <laughs> um, uh, of Afghanistan and where on that spectrum are they going to be? My guess at the moment is you will find the administration somewhere in the middle for the time being, a kind of neutral posture of they can't very well say this is an intolerable outcome because it was a just it's an outcome that the administration decided was tolerable even if they hoped it wasn't going to happen Mm. when they decided to withdraw. So they can't very well say this is an intolerable outcome. I don't think they're going to be the first ones out of the gate to say, we now recognize the Taliban's Islamic Emirate. Um, But there is that middle space where they could not oppose other governments uh, giving recognition to the Taliban, not oppose it themselves, but not be rushing to be too friendly, at least in a public way until we see what materializes. I mean, that's sort of the easiest thing to do. Yeah, and I want to close with something that I've been thinking about a lot over the course of the last couple of days. What does this say about American foreign policy overall that over the course of a lot of people in my age group's entire life, this has been the story effectively? It's a little early to draw big lessons about what it's going to mean for the future of American foreign policy. I think it says even more about 
the use of American military force, what you can and cannot achieve through military force, and what is the role of the use of force and the role of military decision makers in foreign policy than perhaps anything else to me. I mean, I I see this as example number one of over-militarization of Mm -hmm. American foreign policy. But I think it's going to be really important as well when we do start to reflect on these questions to not overly focus on how it all ended, but what were the decisions made at the very start at a difficult time. I mean, I was working in the State Department on 9-11, you know, it was a very difficult time and very, you know, a context in which you shouldn't be making 20 year long decisions. Mm. And we were. And so all of that needs an examination, the unrealistic ambitions of the United States for Afghanistan. I hope that this difficult ending, problematic ending, reversal is not going to lead American government agencies and policymakers to avoid that really tough examination of all the decisions that were made along the way, not just kind of cherry picking the ones that they most disagreed with. Right. Well, thank you so much again for for your time and expertise on all of this and the past decades preceding it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, that was my conversation with Laura Miller, the director of the International Crisis Group's Asia program. We'll have a link to her work in our show notes, and we're going to continue following this story in the days and weeks to come. But that's the latest in this tragedy for now. It's Monday, Watt Squad, and for today's Temp Check, we are talking about perhaps the most influential period of modern art, the Razer Sans, of course. <laughs> Verizon users who purchased the original 2020 reboot of the Razer were surprised this week to be included in an Android operating system update almost a year after it debuted on other Android phones. Better late than ever, I suppose. The rebooted Razer in question varies in many ways from its original 2005 model with a foldable smart touch screen and a starting price point of $1,500. That's a bit steep. Uh, But still, the reboot takes me back to a magical time before every phone was this all-powerful mini-tablet that hardly fits into any jean pocket, a time of T9 texting and all the snake that you could play. So Josie, would you be excited to see the cell phones of yesteryear come back into style? Honestly, I would pay all my retirement savings for a phone that stayed charged (laughs) as long as the old phone stayed charged. So yes, I'm thrilled. Yeah, this would be a life-altering item from that perspective. It recalls a better time in my life overall, too. So that nostalgia element would be really good for me. Like, I feel like that was pre, you know, internet poisoning. That was like a lot of like naivete in my young life. And it just felt nice. Felt nice to have those phones. Imagine not being able to get on Twitter, but you could play Snake. That's a great phone for my mental health. Exactly. We would have created like an entire different kind of human if they had all just continued to do that instead of like the past like 10 to 15 years of what we've been doing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Well, we are excited. Hopefully you will get excited as well. But, you know, $1,500, that's definitely your choice. Uh, Just like that, (laughs) we have checked our temps. Enjoy your nostalgia phones uh, and hope they stay charged. We'll be back after some ads.
What a day is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She absolutely deserves the best. And that's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your auntie, even your granny, okay? Anyone who deserves flowers in your life mm-hmm. doesn't have to be holiday specific. You get flowers, you're getting flowers, <laughs> everyone's getting flowers. <laughs> Go to books.com and use promo code WAD for 25% off. That is B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code WAD, books, promo code WAD. What a day is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Plus, Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. We love Fast Growing Trees here. I keep telling you that the many plants that I've gotten from these folks are yet hanging on. Um, And that's not because I have a green thumb, okay? This spring, Fast Growing Trees, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code WAD at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code WAD at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code WAD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Therapy is great for, you know, you know that thing that just is like sitting on your shoulder, you can't get over it, and you just sometimes need somebody to talk through it with? Therapy can be helpful for that, you all, okay? You got to get it off your chest, you know? And you can do that with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash wad today to get 10% off your first month. That's 10% off your first month at betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash wad. Let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. Recovery efforts in Haiti are underway after the country was hit with a 7.2 magnitude earthquake over the weekend. So far, nearly 1,300 people have been reported dead as of record time, and over 5,700 people have been injured. Mm. Roads, houses, and other major infrastructure were heavily damaged, leaving Haitians without food, without running water, no easy access to medical care. In comparison, this earthquake was more powerful and caused more damage than the 2010 earthquake, which you may remember killed over 300,000 people. The United States sent a specialized search and rescue team to help with recovery efforts. This disaster came as the country was just recently dealing with a political crisis following the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. Yeah, it's just incalculable, really, those numbers. Enormous loss, a huge tragedy. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called for a snap election over the weekend, making Canadians vote in an election happening two years earlier than it was scheduled. 
So for those of us who aren't necessarily familiar with how parliamentary governments work, these elections are called by officials whenever they feel like it, sometimes to capitalize on polls or trends or vibes. Uh, right now, Trudeau's Liberal Party holds a minority in parliament, but he's hoping that they will gain more seats in the spontaneous election based on the popularity that they've gained for their handling of the pandemic. Of course, this is completely a gamble, and there's a chance they might not win any seats at all. Trudeau is also facing criticism from other politicians, including leftist Jagmeet Singh, for calling for an election in the middle of a pandemic. The polls are set to open next month. I love this chaotic energy Canada. <laughs> yeah. That you can just call an election whenever you feel like it. It's pretty amazing. Bring it down here, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we need, more chaos. <laughs> Not one, not two, but three volcanoes are simultaneously erupting in Alaska this week along a remote 800-mile stretch of the Aleutian Island chain. Mm. And no, this isn't just the plot of the next Gerard Butler movie, although it is the plot of the next Gerard Butler movie. Yeah. Uh, the eruptions have been going on for over a week now, and while two of the volcanoes are spewing ash and steam, none of them seemingly pose a threat to nearby communities. The island chain makes up a small part of what's known as the Pacific Ring of Fire, a horseshoe-shaped tectonic plate intersection known for its frequent seismic and volcanic activities. And while Alaska typically experiences just about one volcanic eruption a year, geologists say simultaneous incidents do occasionally occur, with the last triple eruption happening in 2007. While a volcano spewing apocalyptic magma times three sure seems like it could ruin your day, they don't seem to be hurting anyone for now. So do your thing, volcanoes, within reason. Yeah. Everything in moderation. You know, everything. That's what everybody says. Including explosions. Yeah. Right, right, right. Just a few. Um, <laughs> lastly, the Biden administration is taking huge strides on an issue that should hypothetically have support on all sides. That is having yummy food in our tummies. The United States Food Stamp Program has approved one of the largest permanent expansions in its history, with average benefits rising more than 25% above pre-pandemic levels starting in October. The program is also amending its model dietary plan to reflect changes in American diets since its inception in 1962. Yeah, that's quite some time. So, you know, less ham casserole in the mix. Uh, and if that juicy piece of news is the entree, here is the dessert. Data from the U.S. Census Bureau released last week shows that since the implementation of Biden's child tax credit, Food insecurity among households with children has fallen from 11% to 8%. That is the lowest rate recorded since the onset of the pandemic. Put together, these developments show that we are helping more families put food on the table, and that is frankly awesome. Biden's monthly child tax credit is set to last through December, but numbers like these could increase its chances of being renewed for another year. Somebody get out the limbo poll because when it comes to child hunger, I am trying to see how low we can go. It turns out that when you give people benefits, uh, it helps them. Yeah. What a novel concept, right? It's really crazy. Someone should definitely let our government know. Absolutely. And those are the headlines. One more thing before we go. Cricket is back with a brand new season of This Land. This time around, host Rebecca Nagel is taking you inside her year-long investigation into a series of custody battles over Native American children and how the most powerful people on the far right are using them to quietly dismantle American Indian tribes and advance a conservative agenda. This Land's trailer is out right now, and the first two episodes premiere on August 23rd. Listen and subscribe to This Land wherever you get your podcasts. That is all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, taunt an active volcano, and tell your friends to listen. And if you are into reading and not just the bylaws of Canadian snap elections like us, <laughs> What a Day is also a nightly newsletter. So check it out and subscribe at cricket.com slash subscribe. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. I'm Gideon Resnick. And, and watch, watch out, out. We're, we're going to blow. blow. Yeah, we are also part of the extended Pacific Rim. Yes. It's time we admitted it. <laughs> 
What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Sonia Tun and Jazzy Marine are our associate producers, and Kelly Satakun is our intern. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Leo Duran and me. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.